Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Parsha podcast. We are up to Parshat Titzaveh, and I am privileged to be here with my friend, colleague, and teacher, Rabbi Daniel Reifman, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Reifman. Welcome, Daniel. Always a pleasure to see and he, I think he means it. It's hard to tell. Daniel has an excellent poker face. Because you listen to this a few weeks in advance, unfortunately, I keep saying this every week. We are, of course, hoping by the time you are listening to this that uh, the situation in Israel and in the world is much, much better. As it is right now, we are still focusing our thoughts and prayers on the well-being and return of the hostages and peace coming to the land of Israel as soon as possible. So here we are, Parsha Tetzaveh. Tough Parsha, Daniel. A lot of rabbis dread this time of year because they're faced with coming up with something relevant when they're dealing with the tabernacle and all the details of the tabernacle. And here we are. You bravely uh, jumped into the fray. Well, I am not a fashion designer, but fashion designers love this Parsha because it's all about clothing. Okay, so we're going to talk about clothing. In this instance, you want to talk about the clothing, the special clothing that the regular Kohanim and the Kohen Gadol, which is described in great detail here, these uniforms that they have to wear as part of their service. The Kohen Gadol's clothing is the subject of a lot of analysis, a lot of discussion, uh, both in the text and in the commentaries. Just to give a little bit of background, there are eight different garments that the Kohen Gadol would wear, that the high priest would wear. Four of them were garments that he had in common with the other priests, and those were the tunic, a belt, some sort of hat, and also undergarments that are simply called pants because they had tunics and therefore the pants were essentially functioned as undergarments. The high priest had four additional articles of clothing that were much showier. Those garments were mostly made of linen. These garments were actually very colorful, and of course, in the ancient world, colored fabric was a sign of luxury. Colors and dyes in general were very expensive, and therefore, these garments marked the high priest as a royal figure. And these were the meal, the overcoat or over tunic that was entirely made of blue, the choshen, which is the breastplate, which contained the urim and tumim, the stones, 12 stones, each one bearing the name of a different tribe. Are you saying the urim and tumim existed before Yale University, according yes. to your interpretation? Okay. Yes. As I said, these are very popular and subject to a lot of commentary and a lot of later cultural use. You heard it here first, folks. The apron, which went around the lower part of his body and also had straps that extended over and above his shoulders, kind of like suspenders, and they were attached to the breastplate there. And finally, the seats, which was the plate on his forehead. Like a tiara, I'm imagining. Essentially. And on that was carved the words, Kodesh the Hashem, sacred to God. Okay, so for those of us at home, perhaps, who sometimes think that shouldn't religion be the opposite, right? That all this focus on externalities and the pageantry of the whole thing. And I imagine some people look at this and feel like, where's the religious message in this, right? God knows what we look like without our clothes on. And why would it matter so much to the experience of the tabernacle that the priests wear these very detailed, specific uniforms? Well, first of all, we are human. And anybody visiting the tabernacle or the temple needed to be impressed, right? You can say, oh, God understands, you know, where we are deep inside and who cares about externality. But the bottom line is we are who we are. 
we care about pageantry, we care about how things look, and therefore it's important that the Kohen Gadol and the priests in general not only be respectable, but be respected figures. And therefore, these clothes were designed to create the impression that these are special figures, that these are figures worthy of honor and reverence. And of course, the Kohen Gadol needed to be a kind of majestic figure. He had special tasks for the entire nation. He was, in a sense, carrying the weight of the nation on his shoulders when he went about his work in the temple or in the tabernacle, and therefore he needed to look the part. So let's talk a little bit. Obviously, this whole idea of the clothes make the man, we can't help the expression just pops into our minds. And I believe, according to the sages, a Kohen who wasn't wearing the proper clothing couldn't serve. Didn't matter who his father was, didn't matter how great he was, didn't matter how wise. Without the proper clothing, he quite literally could not do his job in the tabernacle or in the temple. And maybe you could help us or walk us through a little bit how you understand the significance of these pieces of clothing. What are they trying to teach us? What are they trying to evoke in us? The pieces of clothing get a lot of analysis, as I said, both in terms of their physical manifestation, how exactly they were supposed to be made, and also, of course, what they represent. And there are kind of clues to this in the text. For example, the meal, the overcoat, there's a lot of emphasis on the upper hem of the coat that was not supposed to be torn and therefore was supposed to be doubled over in order that it wouldn't tear. And also it had bells along the bottom hem, which would tinkle when the Kohen Gadol would walk. When it describes the bells, it talks about the sound, the coal, literally the voice of the Kohen as he would walk through the temple. And when it talks about the upper hem, it calls it the safa, literally the lip. Those two terms suggest to the sages that there's some element of the me'il, some element of this overcoat that was meant to atone for sins that had to do with speech. That was kind of the significance of the me'il. So it's not just an overgarment, it also represents something. It also signifies something about the Kohen Gadol's job, which is to, in part, to atone for our sins. So the Kohen Gadol, or the Kohenim in general, you're saying, is part of what they are doing, right? They're not representing themselves. They are in some foundational way meant to represent all of us in doing what they're doing. How does their clothing, do you think, help them achieve that goal of embodying, if you will, maybe that's the right term to use even, this idea that they are acting on our behalf. Well, so we mentioned before that the breastplate has the 12 stones, one for each tribe. On the Kohen Gadol's shoulders, on the straps of the apron that, as we said before, went over his shoulders like suspenders, there were also stones with names of six tribes on each shoulder. And when the text talks about those stones, the Avnei Miluim, it talks about them and says that the Zikaron of Bnei Israel, the name or the remembrance or the identity even of the Jewish people goes with the Kohen Gadol as he goes about the service. And of course, once a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the temple, and he would literally carry the names, the identities of the entire Jewish people on his shoulders. And therefore, when we talk about the clothes make the man, in this sense, the clothes really are making him more than a normal person. They're turning him into somebody who is the embodiment of the entire Jewish people in as literal a sense as we can talk about. You know, it's interesting because normally when we get all dressed up, we want to call attention to ourselves. And here you're suggesting is the Kohen get all, or any Kohen gets all dressed up precisely to not call attention to himself as an individual, but to, in a way, subsume his personal identity under this larger rubric of being a representative of everyone. 
that might be overstating the case a little too much. I don't think we have to say that the Kohen Gadol completely loses his sense of self. And we can maybe come back to this later when we think about the contemporary relevance of this. After all, even when somebody dresses up, they still are who they are. At the same time, yes, there is some sense in which he is putting on another identity and certainly becoming a different version of himself, right? We hope, we assume that the Kohen Gadol was worthy of this task, but until he had donned the clothing, he really wasn't the man who he became when he actually donned the clothing and was actually fit to do the service that he was designated for. Whose job fundamentally on Yom Kippur and other times is to represent us. Like you said, our names are literally sewn into his clothing, that he has to embody us, represent us, do these things on our behalf as opposed to an individual. Yeah. As the text describes the chavod Aret, you have that sense that he really has become a different person, that he has become worthy of this role in a way that he was not before. It's not simply that he looks the part, it's now that he is somebody else. So I have two directions I want to go with you. One is what you're suggesting, if I understand it correctly, is clothing being more than representing something I already am, but actually having a transformative effect when I put it on or when I wear it. And I also want to get us to talk a little bit about other famous scenes of clothing in the Bible and how you think the clothing of the priests here might represent those other places. So you get to choose which order you want to go in. Let's go for the second one first. What's interesting about the clothing is as much as it's about making the priest, and especially the high priest, somebody more majestic, more honorable, there is the other extreme, which is the michnasayim, the pants or the undergarment that we mentioned before. And here, too, there's a special function that it mentions for the michnasayim. It says they are lechasot besar erva, to cover the nakedness of the priest or the high priest. And we don't usually think about the function of our clothing as covering our nakedness. But of course, in the olden days, they wore a tunic and they weren't wearing undergarments. They were exposed in a certain way. We see concern about exposure in this way elsewhere when it describes the temple service. For example, when it says not to have stairs that go up to the altar, because then as the Kohen is lifting his leg, he exposes more of his lower body. But that was the function of the Mechnasayim, to literally cover their nakedness, to cover their genitals. This links the high priest's garments back to, as you said, another famous garment in the Torah, which is the first garment that human beings wear when Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden. God gives them particular clothing. And that connection of the lechasot besar erva to cover their nakedness, I think, is a reference back to those clothes and a hook that the Midrash uses to connect the clothes of the Kohen Gadol to the clothes that God gifts to Adam and Chava when they leave the garden. The upgrade from the leaves, right? They cover themselves with leaves and God, as maybe the first tailor in Jewish history or human history, offers them an upgrade and gives them clothing. Yeah. When you think about actually why they put the leaves on in the first place, right? Originally, the text tells us they were naked and they were not embarrassed of their nakedness. And then they eat from the tree of knowledge. Suddenly, they become aware of their own bodies and also aware of God in a way that they weren't before. They're ashamed of their sin. They're ashamed of their nakedness. 
and they cover themselves with these fig leaves. It's interesting how the text describes it. They sow fig leaves, try to sow fig leaves, and they tear apart. The fig leaves almost represent the kind of flimsy excuses they give when God confronts them about what they've done. Yeah, that double meaning of when we say use a fig leaf to cover it, it's both the sense that you can't cover it. It's uncoverable, at least uh, by you. There you go. God says, what have you done? And of course, they have no answer and God expels them from the garden. But when God expels them from the garden, he gives them a gift, which is, as the text says, kutnot or literally tunics of leather. The Midrashim do some interesting things with those kotnot or. Some Midrashim play off the word or, meaning leather, ayin vav resh, and read it as or alf vav resh, meaning light. That these are somehow radiant garments that God has given them. But another Midrash takes it literally and says kotnot or is literally leather clothes. And to me, that's very resonant because what is leather? Leather is a kind of second skin. If man and woman have become embarrassed of their nakedness, God gives them leather clothes as a kind of second skin to reclaim their sense of self and their lack of shame at who they are. Which is again interesting, clothes that cover, often we would think like it's hiding something. And yet the Torah seems to be saying, no, it's the opposite. It's enabling you really to go forward and be public and overcome this instinctive shame that we have on some level of our physicality, our sexuality, that the covering isn't about hiding, it's actually enabling. And in this case, the clothing essentially becomes part of who they are. It becomes essentially, as we said, a second skin in a way that enables them to continue forward and not be continually traumatized by what they've done. The Midrash then takes this forward, and actually there are a number of Midrashic traditions that describe how what happens to the Kotnordor and how they're handed down from generation to generation through history. All of the Midrashic traditions converge at the next moment when clothing shows up in the biblical text, which is when Yaakov goes in to see Yitzhak, his father, and deceive him, actually, to get the blessing that was supposed to be given to his brother Esav. When Yaakov does that, Yaakov's mother dresses him in big day, Esav ha-chamudot, his special, I'm not even sure how to translate chamudot, desirable or- Esav's special- Distinctive. Uh, you know, his ball gown, whatever the equivalent would be, right? His fanciest tux. Yaakov goes in dressed in Esav's clothes. He goes to hug Yitzchak and to kiss him. Yitzchak smells the clothes. Yitzchak says, Rech b'ni k'rech Hashem. He says it smells like the scent of the field. And what is the scent of the field? According to the Midrash, the field is Gan Eden. He's smelling the scent of Gan Eden, essentially saying that these are the clothes that God gave to Adam and Chava when they left Gan Eden. The traditions continue and the clothes are handed down through more generations and eventually in some sense, of course not in a literal sense since the high priest's clothing are made of something else entirely, these clothes become or kind of remanifest in the clothes of the Kohen Gadol. It's interesting, in both instances, clothes quite literally cover something, right? They cover nakedness in Adam and Chava and I think you also said cover their shame. And now in the second story you mentioned, they cover up Yaakov's identity, right? It allows him to become somebody else. So the transformative effect of clothing as a cover is extremely powerful here. Covering can mean a number of things. It's interesting that you mentioned, I hadn't actually thought of that in terms of Yaakov, that they cover his identity and turn him into something else. And in fact, if we were to analyze that story, we could talk about the way that Yaakov is transformed by that episode, even though he's sinning in going in and lying to his father. In some sense, he's transformed, and it's the beginning of a long process of transformation on Yaakov's part. 
But when we think about the transformation for the Kohen Gadol and the way they're covering up, it evokes the word kapara. Kapara literally means to cover up, but also to atone. And if the Kohen Gadol's job is to atone for the sins of the Jewish people, then the clothes are essentially helping him serve that function. The clothes initially covered up, atoned for the sin of Adam and Chava. In some sense, the gift of the Kotnot Or that God gives to Adam and Chava is the gift of kapara or tshuva, the ability to go back and be who you were or some version of who you were before the sin. Or maybe even a version of you aspire to be. I can't help but think there's an element of costume here, that the covering of some aspect of ourselves, it's not a falsehood. It's not like I'm play acting. It actually enables me to become this other person that I need to become, that Adam and Chava have to become human beings that can go forward in the world and not be stuck in their own shame. Yaakov has to become not Esav, but maybe adopt some Esav-like features if he's going to then lead the Jewish people. And the Kohen Gadol has to become this representative for Am Yisrael, for the Jewish people, and he steps into that role, and it's not just skin deep, if you pardon that other pun with or, but rather that the clothing in covering something enables something that's true. It's not a play, it's not acting, but it's true. So I'll steal your thunder here and say, hmm, what's the contemporary relevance of all of this? I think. Oh, Daniel always anticipates where I'm going to go. First, if I've understood you, this idea the clothing we can be cynical and say it just covers something. The truth is underneath. What I hear you saying is no, clothing, by putting on clothing, we actually enable this other aspirational truth to emerge. And I think that's very true on a psychological level. When we dress a certain way, it affects how we behave. It affects how we feel about ourselves. It's not just external. It doesn't just affect how other people perceive us. It actually changes in some sense who we are as we're dressing a certain way. And the analogy, I, I can't help but think of God dressing Adam and Eve and Moshe dressing Aaron and his sons, this idea that someone else can actually confer this upon you, I guess if you're God or Moshe, but an idea that it can come from the outside and transform you is also a very powerful idea. In the sense, it's not even a choice, right? These are uh, certainly in the sense of the high priest, these are uniforms that they have to wear. They're tasks that they have been given rather than having been chosen and yet they are still transformed. You know, I can't help but think of the soldier. Of course, these days it's hard not to think of soldiers, that they put on that uniform and something has to transform, right? They have to become something else with all that that means. And I'm just wondering how that association plays with you. It's interesting that you talk about that. I escorted my daughter off. She went back to her base this morning and was talking about her uniform. I had her look, Abba. I said, you look fine. <laughs> Everybody in uniform looks fine. I uh, can't believe you answered honestly. I feel like that's just mistake one in the Abba guidebook, but go ahead. I think soldiers are certainly she, as a relatively new soldier, is very self-conscious about how she looks in uniform and especially how she looks in uniform off base. On base, everybody's in uniform and therefore you don't really think about it. It's when you're off base, when you're traveling to your base, when you are actually required to wear every piece of it. And there's a sense in which you are representing the nation, you're representing the army, you are representing a particular role, and you think about yourself differently. Which indicates, again, the power of putting on clothing, especially clothing that's handed to us and determined for us by something greater than ourselves in that effect. So 
of course, now I'm going to come back to the question that you tried to ask me, but I'm going to ask you because uh, that's my privilege because I get to host. And that's the contemporary issue of clothing and uniforms. And I'm going to weight my question in a particular direction. Sometimes I find, especially in Israeli society, but I guess it's everywhere, that each group has its uniform, right? We go out into the mall and we quickly believe, oh, there's the ultra-Orthodox family, there's the modern religious Zionist family, there's the more right-wing religious Zionist family, and there's the secular person. And we look at those uniforms and we think we know so much about who that person is. I'm just wondering, in light of the conversation of the power and the inspiration the uniforms can carry, do you ever worry about the effect that uniforms can have? Uniform literally, of course, means one form, meaning everybody wears the same thing. Uniforms, as we said, are not chosen by us. They're often imposed on us. Being a member of a particular community almost necessitates that you dress a certain way. So am I worried about uniforms? No, because they're in one sense simply representative of the different groups and divisions that already exist within Israeli society with all of their positive and negative sides. When uniforms maybe become a little worrisome is, as you said, when we make too many assumptions about the way that somebody's dressed, not only about which community they belong to, but about the ways we expect members of that community to belong. Have you ever had an experience of somebody misjudging you? They looked at your kippah, they looked at your very fashionable outfit, I'm going to say, and they assumed they knew your politics, your religious attitudes, your feelings about the world. And did you ever feel like, wait a minute, you don't, that's not who I am. You cookie cuttered me, but I don't belong in that mold. I feel that way all the time. What your question brought to mind is the time that I actually judged somebody incorrectly, as it turned out, because of the uniform that they were wearing. I was sitting opposite a Haredi man on the bus. There was a woman standing between us, an elderly woman who I assumed wanted to sit down. I looked away for a moment, and when I looked back, the Haredi man had his hat on an open seat. And I said something to him. I said, please move your hat so that the woman can sit down. He said, why don't you sit here? And I continued to talk to him. I said, you know, really, you should let the woman sit down and not cover the seat with a hat because you don't want a woman sitting next to you. And he said to me, well, I asked her and she didn't want to sit down. The assumptions that I made about this Haredi man, an element of his uniform, a hat that happened to be covering a seat. And that was a incorrect assumption on my part. Uh, he had, in fact, asked the woman to sit down next to him. My assumption was that Haredi men don't want to sit next to women on buses. And that turned out not to be true. I felt bad about that. In other words, with all the power that comes with the uniform, there is a danger that we will focus too much on the external. You know, going back to your example, a Kohen Gadol who looks great and wears all the clothing properly, if his heart and soul are not in the right direction, all the bells and even the fancy tiara that says holiness to God, all that great stuff presumably will not get the job done. Jewish history is full of stories of Kohanim Gdolim who were not actually worthy of the task. We don't know that much, for example, about the Second Temple period, but legend has it that many of the high priests during the Second Temple period were given the task because of bribes or because of influence, and therefore were really not worthy. So yes, clothing can make the man, but only if the man is worthy of being made into the person that the uniform wants to turn them into. That's a very powerful way of putting it. So in terms of the divisions in Israeli society, 
And in terms of uniforms, I think that's one issue that the Jewish people are thinking about in terms of our ability to connect to one another and do these uniforms separate us or do they actually help us in some way. The other piece I think it's relevant for a lot of people out there is fears of wearing visible Jewish clothing in a world that uh, a lot of people worry is not so sympathetic or kind to Jews, where you know people, I'm told, when they go to certain countries, they don't wear a kippah anymore, they wear a hat, or they tuck their tzitzit, their fringes in. They don't wear shirts with Hebrew letters on them. And of course, we know that in certain parts of the United States of America, ultra-Orthodox shoes, because they are so readily identified, as you said, the hat, the suit, everything else, that they sometimes suffer from attacks because they are readily identified as Jews. And I'm just sort of wondering how that piece of it sort of connects in our sense of, are we afraid to wear a uniform today? It's interesting that we talk about Haredim because Haredim are so identifiably Jewish in maybe an artificial way. But the fact is, for most of Jewish history, Jews really have been identifiable by their dress, by their demeanor. We are privileged and also challenged to live in a time where we have the choice to dress differently, to disguise ourselves, so to speak, if we want to think about it that way, to blend in in a way that Jews were not given the luxury for most of Jewish history, even at times when Jews were not required to wear a Jewish star or any special clothing. I can't say that I necessarily have opinions one way or the other. Everybody has to assess how they feel. I myself have at times not wanted to wear my kippah openly and have chosen to wear a hat. But they are important questions to think about in terms of where our Judaism on our sleeve, uh, literally or figuratively, when does that become a priority? When do we decide I'm going to stand up for who I am and I'm going to look whatever danger is there in the face? And when do we choose to be a little more circumspect? And I think our students at Pardes are thinking about those questions a lot. Many of them do not have necessarily a practice of wearing a kippah or other types of visibly identifiable Jewish clothing and are thinking about how they want to identify. Do they want to wear that uniform? Are they afraid of wearing that uniform? And it's, I think, a scary and difficult question for many of them, and maybe reminds us that the world has gotten a lot more complicated in the last six months than we thought it was beforehand. And here again, as a matter of uniform, not as something that's imposed on us, but it's something that we actively choose. So you've given us a lot to think about. First of all, you took a Parsha that most people would want to skip, and you jumped right in there. And I think this question of, first of all, having a mission, a mission that transcends yourself and how the clothing that you wear can prepare you and empower you and identify with that mission, I think is a very powerful message. The transformative effect that wearing that uniform had on the priest and the high priest to embody something beyond themselves is a very powerful message. And I also think that we maybe have to think that way whether we're wearing a special uniform or not, right? In other words, we maybe have to begin our day thinking about how we can embody kavod and tifaret, right? Honor and glory and representing the Jewish people and representing God in the world, that we have a mission. And whether we get to wear special clothes or not, maybe we have to think in terms of that mission and how we need to aspire to it and empower ourselves to engage it, even though it feels too big for us. When you think about the function of the Kohen Gadol that was enabled, as you said before, by the clothing, it's atonement. There's a kind of metaphysical or religious function to the clothing that the Kohen Gadol is not able to do on their own. 
And when we think more broadly about our role as Jews, the Jewish people are referred to in the book of Vayikra as Mamlechat Kohanim Vagoy Kadosh. Even if we are not all priests, the entire nation are virtual priests. We all have a special role to play in the world. We're not always aware of the effect that we have. We're not always aware of the significance of our actions or our decisions, but they have real effects. And therefore, when we think about how to dress, I think we are choosing to not only present ourselves a certain way, choosing not only to affect our own behavior through what we wear, but also in some sense to fulfill a certain role in terms of who we become via our clothing. And in a way, we're covering an aspect of ourselves when we dress, but we're also enabling or empowering a part of ourselves, a better part in many instances, to emerge and be out there in the world in a very powerful way. So Daniel's given you all your instructions for the coming week. Uh, think carefully how you want to present yourself to the world and how you want to act in the world. And when you get dressed in the morning, imagine you are putting on that uniform of goodness, kindness, awareness of others, care about the world, whatever, you know, holiness. We come up with a very nice list and dress yourself for that. And don't let your thoughts of how you're not good enough and the shameful thing you did yesterday or the day before, or I lost my temper the other day, how am I going to be that person? You can be that person. The Kohen, I guess, had to experience every day they put on their priestly clothing, they had to believe they could be that person and have that person emerge on behalf of the Jewish people. So Daniel, thank you very, very much for your time and your wisdom. Thank you, Tzvi, for your insight and your very careful prompting. Yes, I was careful. So on that note, again, we pray that by the time you hear this, the hostages will be released and there will be peace in the land of Israel. And we wish all of you who are listening a wonderful, peaceful Shabbat. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.